Hello and welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today is a special episode. I'm joined by Carl and Bo. Hello. In the new studio. And we are going to talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Go back to the very earliest thing to talk about in the first studio. Yes. Like the first time. We need to start from the beginning. <laughs> now, uh, one thing, although you won't see this first, this is the first premium content we're recording on this studio. And uh, I'm really anxious to see how it goes. I hope it goes well. But I think it will, because Epic of Gilgamesh is basically fantastic. Yes. We can't go wrong with that. So um, the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the ancient te- mo- most ancient epics. Uh, I think it's 4,000 years old, something like that. And it was discovered in the middle of the 19th century by archaeologists who, were, who discovered some clay tablets in modern-day North Iraq in the city of Nineveh who discovered the library of the, the ancient Assyrian king Ashurbanibal. And within that library, they found some clay tablets. And when they started reading them, they said that the person who first read them or translated them was ecstatic. He, he literally threw his clothes off from excitement. It's quite unusual as well, because most uh, ancient writing is really boring. Uh, it, it took them a long time to actually write down anything of substance that we would be interested in writing. You know, most of it was just, you know, this person owes this other guy three bulls or something like that, right? Yes. And, and it actually took a long time before they decided to write down the sort of epics of creation and things like that. So Exactly. There were um, registers. Mm. And mo- most of them were, you could say, accountant uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sheets. Yeah, that, that's and, why writing was developed in the first yeah. place. And it's 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 really interesting for historians because we can also find out, you know, the the coins that people used, and the the you know the the, the customs. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's it's not an epic, and uh, yeah. epics are really particular. They occupy a really particular place in the hearts of uh, of people, and I think that they sort of function as a way of ensuring and establishing a kind of collective identity, at least in the, in, the, in the ancient Greek world. The Homeric epics were a means of establishing a kind of collective identity because mm. they were the main subject of, of teaching. Mm. They, they, they had uh, moral, uh, um, geographical and theological uh, instruction contained within them. And it's definitely the same for the Epic of Gilgamesh. Because you see, it, it, we've, we've discovered loads of copies of it from all of the civilizations of the Near East. And so this is clearly something they viewed as being on a par with the Iliad to the Greeks. I think. Yes, I think to say is that it is a piece of literature. It's not about religion. It's not about daily life or the bureaucracy. It's a deliberately a piece of literature. I think something to point out I find fascinating about Gilgamesh is that it laid essentially forgotten for thousands of years under the yeah. desert of northern Mesopotamia up near Nineveh, modern-day Mosul. Um, and it was only rediscovered, as you say, in the 19th century and then not translated into English and published for mass consumption until sort of like 1912 or something. So it's, some people might think, oh, Gilgamesh has just been around and been known since ancient times. Well, it's not, it's not the case. Um, I think that's absolutely fascinating to remember that because now you can just get a penguin paperback version of it. And we think that there's sort of, there's just the one version, one canon version, but 
as Carl already sort of alluded to, it's not anywhere near that simple. They found the first fragments of the, at the uh, library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh. And they found it was fragmentary, of course, because yeah. the, the library was uh, made of smashed up tablets. Um, and as time goes forward, we found more and more versions of it, more and more fragments of it all over the place, including, as, as, you, might, as you mentioned, in quite, places quite far away, really, from, from the Sumerian or the Babylonian world up in Syria and even Turkey, modern Turkey. Mm. And so the story of Gilgamesh is, um, it, it lasted for a long time and there's many, many yeah. versions of it. And so where it's been stitched together, and again, you can buy a sort of a penguin paperback version, um, it's, it's a jigsaw. Yeah. Um, and we, it, is, it is sort of more or less a complete jigsaw, but it is, it is bits from all over the place that have been stitched together. Um, and they think there, there was sort of a canon version, i.e. over the generations, over the centuries, it was copied out faithfully. But nonetheless, there are still discrepancies and later people would maybe add little bits like we think maybe the last segment mm -hmm. where Gilgamesh dies, I think maybe that's tacked on, maybe that's a much, much later edition and not really strictly original, although still dated from the ancient world. So anyway, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make it's is that it's... not strictly original, it's only 3,000 years yeah, old. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, so the, the idea that Gilgamesh... Is, is a character from the Sumerian world. He's supposed to be of Uruk, isn't mm. he? Which is Sumerian, not Babylonian, not, um, not Assyrian, Sumerian. But the, the Akkadians and the Babylonians the and, the, and, the, and the Assyrians, they looked back, they, he was a, an, an ancient figure for them. Yeah. Um, so just want to put it in that sort of context. Was so, he, just as a quick thing as well, it's also worth noting that while the earliest tablets are probably something like 4,000 years old. The story doubtless predates them by a great deal of time mm. as well. Because mm. as you go through it, you realize that, uh, like with the Iliad, actually, there, there are passages in it where it's kind of um, almost musical repetition to just to repeat exactly the same phrase. And so that's clearly you know a mnemonic to make sure that the person reciting it is, can remember it. And it's poetic in places as well so it's you, you can see this isn't just someone wrote down a novel uh, this is an ancient collection of folk and oral tales that then got written down sometime about four thousand years ago yeah it's not prose got... it's not prose yeah. it, it is yeah. it is poetry yeah um apparently it's mainly done in couplets right two sort of statements that um um that feed off each other and play into each other mm. so it's an epic poem yeah there are apparently bits that are sort of prose-like, but yeah, it's not prose. Yeah. It is so sort of an epic poem. It, it just definitely predates the time that, when it was written down by a significant amount. So we're, 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 we're talking about a story that undoubtedly had its origins deep in the murky past, even for those people who lived thousands of years ago. You know, yeah. This was an ancient tale handed down from the older days. And they refer to these sort of, days quite often actually you know they, they are very conscious of an ancient history before them mm. you know so yeah the assumes the days of ashurbanipal uh, they were already looking back to ancient sumer mm. and sort of legendary semi-mythical figures like gilgamesh it was it was ancient history for them yeah but the, um, the, the and, people who wrote it down it was ancient history for them as well right you know so like you know then you've got the you you go to the library you get this ancient tablet 
and that's ancient to you. And so it's this is a story, the age of the story is just one of those things that's really, you can't overstate just how old this story is. And when we come to go through it, this is one of the things that I love about it is that it really resonates. You know, all the themes are totally themes that young men should be thinking about now. Exactly. Um, and so it shows you that human nature kind of is timeless. Mm. This is this has always been this way. And uh, there's a bit right at the beginning where in in the epic it says it mentions things that are already ancient. Yes. Yeah. In the story, so yeah. there's just many many layers to it. Um, it's multi layered, and I also think it's worth pointing out that. Um, whether there was a real figure of Gilgamesh, of course we can't really know, but whether there was a historical figure that the original writers, can't really say that, but whoever originally, the, author the, the original author, authors of Gilgamesh, whether they were basing it, at least in part, on some sort of real historical king from Uruk, uh, we've got no way of knowing that. No. Um, and it's not really worth going into in any detail right here, or just to mention it though, that mm. there may or may not have been um, a real person that Gilgamesh is based upon. Of course, there's all the details in it are mythological yeah. and there's but, gods and things. But uh, I think the people who argue for the claim that he was a historical figure, they say that he lived. He was a king around 2700 BC. Right. So if that's the case, then um, if the epic is, let's say, 4,000 years old, then there could be centuries yeah. that separated Gilgamesh and the people who talked about it, about him. Hmm. And uh, I think that it is an epic. And the epic, and the epics have a, as we said before, they have a really special connection to forging an identity for the people. And I think they have all sorts of themes. And we should focus on the on the notion on, on literacy. Literacy wasn't widespread. It was literally a very tiny minority of people that could read and write. And those who basically were control of writing, they were control of forging that identity. And mm. the kinds of themes that they include included in epics, there were also the, the moral teachings or the wisdom literatures that they were imparting upon the other people and the, the other generations as well. Mm. And I think that we should bear this in mind because literacy wasn't widespread back then. And um, literally, the people who recited the epics, they were seen as basically the teachers. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And now an another thing to talk about is that it seems to me that, as you said, it it's a timeless epic. Hmm. And um, it is so, it has all sorts of themes inside it. It has the theme of friendship, the theme of wanting to build something of lasting influence, the, the theme of immortality hmm. and the pursuit of immortality. Um, the it, desire for adventure. Exactly. The desire for adventure. The, the desire for, uh, let's say, overpowering uh, obstacles and mm -hmm. overcoming obstacles. And you could say to an extent overcoming nature. Yeah. It has all these aspects into it. And um, that is why it resonates. It's, it's timeless. And it has teachings to give us. And in the epics, and especially in this epic as well, I think that it was a piece of literature, as you said before, but the, the way that this literature is communicated, I think is a bit more holistic in a philosophical fashion. It's more a 
a piece of, you could say, philosophical literature because it does seem to involve thought about the basic questions mm. of, you know, of life. Oh, of, well, you get quite a lot of that, especially towards the end, where they're like, where Gilgamesh yeah. is searching for eternal life, and they're like, you can't find this. Yeah. This doesn't exist. You and, won't get it. And also the theme of human limitations. And yeah. there seems to me to be a persistent theme of religious underpinning of it, because we do function, at least in this epic, this is an epic that focuses on a polytheistic context, and we regularly have gods interfering oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, wreaking havoc, let's say, yeah. or helping other human beings, but usually yeah. they do bad things. They definitely interfere with people's lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would say there are obviously lots of themes, lots and lots of themes in it. Um, but I would say the main one is death. Yeah. I would say that uh, perhaps with the exception of some of the earlier chapters, it's an extended meditation on death. Um, or on on mortality, um, and it does deal with sort of some of the most profound themes of of the human condition. That's why it's really uh, it still speaks to us today. Um, sort of, I suppose one of the most profound truths or facts of of, of human existence is is death. Yeah, that you're going to die. <laughs> And you're going to have to come to terms with that. And it's something the moderns don't do um, very well at all, isn't it? All right. Um, and so certainly most of the second half or the last two thirds of the book, I would say, hmm. are really all, it's all about death. Yeah. Um, so um, although there are some f- even funny, certainly very interesting <laughs> bits in it, quite a lot of it is, is quite dark. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a very dark it's a very dark epic because essentially it's about human limitations. Yeah, and uh, I think we should start reading from the beginning of the the prologue and the beginning of the book because I think that it's very interesting to see the function of the prologue. In Do you want me to text. read the prologue? Uh, I've got it all here. Yeah, yeah. if you want. Yeah. Right. Begins. I will proclaim to the world the deeds of Gilgamesh. This was the man to whom all things were known. This was the king who knew the countries of the world. He was wise, he saw mysteries and knew secret things. He brought us a tale of the days before the flood. He went on a long journey, was weary, worn out with labour. Returning, he rested, engraved on a stone the whole story. When the gods created Gilgamesh, they gave him a perfect body. Shamash, the glorious sun, endowed him with beauty. Adad, the god of the storm, endowed him with courage. The great gods made his beauty perfect, surpassing all others, terrifying like a great wild bull. Two-thirds they made him god, one-third man. In Uruk he built walls, a great rampart, and the temple of blessed Iana for the god of the firmament Anu, and for Ishtar, the goddess of love. Look at it still today, the outer wall where the cornice runs. It shines with the brilliance of copper, and the inner wall, it has no equal. Touch the threshold, it is ancient. Approach Iana, the dwelling of Ishtar, our lady of love and war, the like of which no latter-day king, no man alive can equal. Climb upon the wall of Uruk. Walk along it, I say. Regard the foundation terrace and examine the masonry. Is it not burnt brick and good? The seven sages laid the foundations. That's great, isn't it? And it's speaking directly to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, go to Uruk, which you can actually still do today, incredibly. (laughs) Um, There's not much... Well, people disagree with me. Now. I was going to say there's not much there. There is quite a lot there of archaeology, a... but there's not sort of giant walls and things. But there's you there's can still you can still walk sort of walk along the walls of Uruk today, incredibly. But it's interesting that it's sort of uh, the voice 
speaks directly to the reader there. Mm. Go there, see this thing. Yeah, it's still, it's here, still yeah. there today. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's quite something when the voice from uh, the long, long ago, yeah. from thousands and thousands of years ago, somebody is speaking directly to you. Yeah. I find that sort of all like... Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Like, There's an enduring quality to it. Incredible. Yeah. One thing to say about this, because I think the function of the prologue is salient to understand the text. It sort of starts from the end. Mm. And it says that Gilgamesh did go on a journey. He did return from this journey and he wrote the story. And uh, it describes Gilgamesh as in his end... Uh, as he was in the end of his journey. Mm. And it says he was wise, to him all things were known. Mm. And uh, he also, he knew the countries of the world. He went on a long, long journey and he came back and he built things of lasting influence. And I think that this is really important to remember because uh, one of our, one of the, the aspects of our, let's say, trying of our efforts to deal with the, with our mortality, has to do with wanting to outlast ourselves mm. and wanting to build something that will outlast us. And in the we are told in the prologue that Gilgamesh did become a wise person with knowledge of important facts of the world, who, did, who was a benefactor of his city, and he did leave something behind. So it is a way of saying that he didn't eventually become immortal, but he did somehow leave a legacy behind, mm. that there is a reputation by the name Gilgamesh that lasted afterwards. It's kind of a repudiation of Shelley's Ozymandias, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, you know, the walls of Gilgamesh are still here. So, and it's important to bear in mind that he was two-thirds divine, but the third that was human was the one that essentially drugged him down. Two-thirds divine weren't strong enough to lift the third, the third human. So I think that there, there's an interesting religious underpinning here, or at least something about polytheism, is that humans are way worse, or they are more bad or more limited than gods are good. So we mm. regularly see people believing in gods and saying and not treating them as completely benevolent they literally talked about gods as being really bad and vicious in well, this. I mean, Gilgamesh is openly hostile to some gods yes it's just uh, hmm. uh, openly repudiating in the most harsh terms yeah. and that that actually well uh, as we'll see like that's that's one of the reasons that he comes unstuck at some points yeah so I think that's one of the main themes in it um, among the sort of secondary themes is uh, again it's all about the human condition. Um, what separates men from beasts when we get into Enkidu is described as a, mm. sort of almost an animal, really, not really a, f a full bat, a full man. Gilgamesh sort of and, and Uruk make him into a man. But the difference between men and beasts and the difference between men and gods, um, the human condition obviously being that you are going to die mm -hmm. one day and that you're aware of it. Yeah. Because <laughs> animals, we, they're, they're not aware of it. Right, yeah. And so that's your lot as a, as a man. Um, you're sort of doomed to know that. Yeah, you're, um, you're in this middle position because the, the gods are called the immortals. Definitionally, they're not going to die. You are definitionally called a mortal and you are rational, unlike the animal. So you're in this unenviable position where not only do you know about death, you know it's coming for you, 
and you don't know when. And that's another theme yeah, that comes along. It's like, no, up. no man knows when his fate is. There's literally a line in that, yeah. isn't there, yeah. later when they say, and you won't know the day yeah. when, it, said, when death comes for you. Okay, so I think we should move on with NKB. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing to say is that we are using uh, this text. I, at least I'm using this text, and it seems that they are the. There are loads of translations. Yeah. And so I, I listened to an audiobook of um, uh, one called The New Translation, which I understand is uh, a more comprehensive version of the story that was pieced together from like Babylonian, Hittite, Assyrian, yeah. you know, all, all of these things to flesh out the narrative because to fill in the kunai um, in different bits. But I've also got like another translation here that I'm using. So the the advantage of using multiple translations is you can kind of triangulate on what the guy's trying to say. You know, hopefully, maybe yeah. give you a sort of broad outline of somewhere in here around these boundaries is what he's actually trying to tell you. The one I'm using is by N.K. Sanders from the sixties. Well, yeah. one other thing quickly to say about that before we actually get into the story is that it is still an evolving thing. So not that long ago. Like just a few years ago, they found a new bit. Yes. So the archaeology is still finding yeah. new things. And so like, now I think Gilgamesh is made up of is well over 200 fragments it's made up of now. When they first published it in like the early 20th century, it was dozens and dozens less than that. Yeah. And like I say, in like the 2010s at some point, they found a new bit. Yeah, it was fra um, another fragment of uh, Tablet 5, I think it was. Right. I think I actually did an audio recording of it. Uh, right, yeah. So in, and in the future, we'll almost certainly find more. Yes. So... Right. I think I, sh I should start by reading the beginning of the first part, which is the coming of Enkidu. Um, well, I've, I've got some quotes, because uh, if, you, if you want me to do it, oh, well, you can do it. I, I can read now. Yeah, okay. okay. So it says, Gilgamesh went abroad in the world, but he met with none who could withstand his arms till he came to Uruk. But the men of Uruk muttered in their houses, Gilgamesh sounds the toxin for his amusement. His arrogance has no bounds by day or night. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all, even the children. Yet the king should be a shepherd to his people. His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of the noble. Yet this is the shepherd of the city, wise, comely, and resolute. The gods heard their lament. The gods of heaven cried to the lord of Uruk, to Anu, the god of Uruk. A god has made him, Strong as a savage bull, none can withstand his arms. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all. And is this the king, the shepherd of his people? His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of the noble. When Anu had heard their lamentation, the gods cried to Aruru, the goddess of creation, You made him, now create his equal. Let it be as like him, as his own reflection, his second self. Stormy heart for stormy heart. Let them contend together and leave Uruk in quiet. I love this intro. I, I absolutely love it because <laughs> it's it paints a picture of a person that is completely unlike the person we read about in the prologue. Yeah. yeah. And this is what seems to me to suggest that this is a journey where you can take someone from the state of, let's say, of... Gilgamesh, which seems to me to he seems to me to represent brute force, lust, but in the beginning. He he represents an incredibly strong young man. Yes. That's what he is. He's and he's the because I mean Uruk's problem is Gilgamesh's raw power. Yes. Like Gilgamesh is just able to do all of these things. And because 
He's obviously an inexperienced young man. He's just doing the worst things that he could do, and everyone in Uruk is suffering for it. Well, I'd say it's um, like, there's a bit more than just being a really strong young man. He's like a tyrant. Oh, yeah, he's he supposed is to be, is, if it's not clear, he's supposed to be the king of Uruk. Yeah. And um, so he's behaving as a tyrant um, that he insists on deflowering all brides himself before yes. he gives them to to their grooms. He's, he's literally cuckolding the entire city of Uruk. And uh, physically um, besting all other men hmm. in, the, in the city. Um, and so he's acting as a, a, an autocrat, a tyrant, something like that. Hmm. Um, but I, th- I think there's an analog- analogy there to a smaller scale. So, uh, you know, a strong young man being aware of his own strength and the strongest person around and misusing that power. Mm, right? That's the, definitely there, that, for that's, sure, for yeah, sure. And I, th- I think that's essentially the lesson that's being shown to young men. So look, other people will perceive you like this and they will hate you for it. You will be acting like the tyrant. And I mean, you can see this is an immature man, right, in Gilgamesh. And like you say, in the very first, it's a very mature man at the end. And so you can see that you begin like this, but you won't end like this. I think he represents human potential Mm. because it's brute force in the beginning, the way I see it. And he misuses it. Mm. He, He sleeps with the women and no woman yeah. escapes his lust. <laughs> not yeah. the son, not the daughter of the noble, yeah. not, not any not any woman. But it seems to me that this is just a, a representation or an analogy for human potential. We have the most powerful man hmm. in the most powerful position. He's a king. There is no no one that challenges his position. So he's just brute force. Yeah. So the the question it comes as to how the and the epic seems to me the main theme of the epic is to how we can escape from brute force to become into the best versions of ourselves in a non in, in not in a modern context but the best no, no, no. that humans can be. And, and I, sorry, just a quick thing. What and the the important thing I think to remember is. The, the, the question is of hierarchy and respect, right? Yeah. Because Gilgamesh just doesn't respect the people below him because he is in a position exactly. of far superior power. Yes. And literally, can you create him an equal? You know, he needs a peer to moderate his behavior. Yeah. That's literally what they say. And there is, an, there is a very interesting uh, theme here that you could say that a sort of near equality of power mm is a basis for friendship because they will eventually become friends. Yeah. And this is the basis for respect. Yeah. Because you could say that this is a tragic feature of life that many moralists lament about, is that at the end of the day, power has to be there. So the it's not an issue of dispensing with power. It's an issue of learning how to use it correctly mm-hmm. and how to not being tyrannical with it but to use it for good. And and for that, you need someone yeah. who is roughly approximate to yourself. Yeah. If you've only got subjects who are vastly yeah. inferior to you, yeah. you become contemptuous. Exactly. There's a, there's a line, I think, in the first or second chapter where it talks about, it explicitly says, um, you know, don't abuse your power, Gilgamesh. Yes. Um, That's in the beginning of the second. We'll get there. And, um, but it is something that not all men, but most men sort of need to learn at some point, yeah. uh, especially if you're sort of a big, powerful bloke. Yeah. 
right? If you're 6'3 and you're 220 pounds and you're 22, yeah. you can physically dominate most people, yeah. but you have to learn, teach yourself not to do it yeah. or hardly ever to do it, right? Um, or you need some other big guys to come along and tell you to stop. Right, yeah, yeah. to be humbled at some yeah. point. Yeah. Right, um, but because, of course, some men don't learn that lesson yeah. and go literally go around bullying everyone they meet physically, dominating everyone they meet, raping people. So, so it is a lesson that um, lots of men do need to learn. Um, it's incredible, really, isn't it? Just to yeah. make the point again that four thousand year old piece of literature is dealing with something as sort of fundamental as that. But straight but, away. But this yeah. is the most uh, timeless and important lesson young men have to learn. I think because I mean every young man is strong when he's young. You know, every young man. You know, when you're in your twenties and you realise, oh, I can lift some weights. I can. You know, do boxing. I can. I. I'm actually stronger than a lot of the people around me. You. You realize. Hang on a second. This can easily go to your head, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you can lose perspective. Perspective. Yeah. I was never blessed with being massive. I was massively never, strong. But what if you massive. were six five, yeah. and you are uh, a, an athlete, a mm. specimen? You're like two hundred over two hundred pounds, and you're six five, and you can. There's hardly anyone. Yeah. Around. Yeah that you couldn't beat down if you yeah. wanted to. Like Gilgamesh. And it's entirely up to you not to do it yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the time. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable, really, that most men don't, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's why siblings are good, to have older yeah. siblings, or to have a father that will just yeah. stop you from doing it when you're young enough. Which is precisely why um, Aruru creates Enkidu as a brother for Gilgamesh. Right, yeah. It's precisely why she does it. And w one last bit to mention about the other uh, bit is that it seems to me also that there is a theme of balance of powers as being mm. the let's say the generator of a more balanced social order because they say let's please gods create someone that is his, his equal yeah. so they can deal with each other and leave us alone <laughs> yeah that's another thing yeah literally let them contend together and leave Uruk in quiet yeah. just a bored yeah. king hanging around yeah. at home is just the worst thing that you, <laughs> yeah. you can have <laughs> and the, the way that Enkidu is created and uh, the, the way that he features in the story, because you could say that it's, he is as important in the story as Gilgamesh is. Oh, yeah. For the, yeah, it, it's really interesting. And it shows a lot of the beliefs that people had about uh, how the phenomena took, pla took place. Mm. I mean, we, I can, I've got a little bit on the creation of Enkidu, if you yeah, want to read yeah. it. Uh, Aruru, the goddess of creation, dipped her hands in the water and pinched off clay, and she let it fall in the wilderness, and the noble Enkidu was created. There was virtue in him of the god of war, of Ninurta himself. His body was rough, he had long hair like a woman's. It waved like the hair of Nisaba, the goddess of corn. His body was covered in matted hair like Samukwans, the god of cattle. He was innocent of mankind and knew nothing of the cultivated land. And uh, we're told that he eats grass and runs with beasts in the wild. So he doesn't eat meat, apparently, which is interesting. So he's, he's got the aspect of like a bull. Yeah, he's just pure raw power. Yeah. All, all, of the, uh, all of the ancient sort of um, carvings of him show him with horns as well. Yeah. So he's, he's very much like a wild He bull. has a beastly nature in, oh, yeah. in the same way that Gilgamesh has in his city, and he tyrannizes yeah. his city. Yeah, Enkidu is supposed to be sort of a... So something like a beast man yeah, yeah more animal more beast than man he's not civilized yeah that's it's, exactly the point that's he's the not point civilized. of him really is that he's not civilized yeah. in any way uh he needs to be taught that yeah um, he he hangs out with animals 
Yeah, and, like and the gazelles. gazelles quite often. Yeah. He's brothers with gazelles more than with other men. Yeah. Right, yeah. And th there's a really nice theme there about women. That Well, should we get to Shamat? Yeah. Sorry. Well, so what, what I find interesting is Enkidu's first interaction with humans uh, is destroying the traps of a trapper to save the animals from the traps. Yeah. And so the trapper goes to his father and says, um, there's this terrifying, giant, scary beast man out there who's destroying our traps. What are we going to do? And his father's like, well, go to Gilgamesh and ask him for a harlot to give to the beast man in order to tame him. And that's interesting, isn't it? That's the first thought on your mind? Oh, he needs a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, will, that will sort of tame his wilder, like, beast man type uh, passions. Which we see every day. Uh, you know, yeah it's mimetic like you there there are memes of you know the the wild punk rocker guy who gets married and becomes normal and you know like this everyone like that's women are part of the domestication process of men you know that's that's definitely true and uh he he calls for a harlot gilgamesh gives him a harlot yeah shamhat yes she's actually and, named uh, they say that this is the ancient women's art Yes. To lure, to lure him. Yeah. And I, I think there are further uh, themes here. You could say it reminds me a bit of Aristotle. In, in what respect? In the place he gives to family for generating social order. Now, of course, Shamat and Enkidu don't, uh, don't become a family, but it's a form of saying that they have a kind of inclination propensity to mate and that this is one of the major reasons why people come together and societies are created but well, it seems that Enkidu likes Shamat because she stays yes. with him and he stays with her for six days and seven nights yeah yeah, yeah. it's interesting that it, most translations call her a harlot or the harlot yeah or sometimes a wanton I think that's a really funny turn of phrase but let's be clear a prostitute for old Shamat a, a, a prostitute yeah or a, a, well, another translation has a child of pleasure um, um, I don't think literally a child, but you know, no, she's no, a no. prostitute, yeah. um, and uh, and she and she's not ashamed in any way of it. Um, no, and and so <laughs> the trapper does. Gilgamesh does give the trapper this this harlot, and she sort of ha happily goes along with it. It seems got no yeah got no qualms, no real questions. She um, gets undressed in front of Enkidu, and Enkidu's like, "This is new." And then they spend a week making love. But then he does become uh, more of a man, less of an animal. Yes. Because after that, the, the creatures... The don't uh, want to have anything to do with him. They ostracise him, don't they? So the plan yeah. works. The trapper's plan, yeah. or the trapper's father's plan, works perfectly. Yeah. Um, and there are, as you say, there are loads, lots and lots of examples of that in real life. People out there probably know it. It may even happen to them. Yeah. That you were sort of a completely loose cannon. You're sort of out of your mind, and then you had a, like a proper grown-up relationship with a woman, and you become basically more civilized. You become reasonable a bit. Yeah, right? that's, that's happened to dozens of men. I know. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and there's lots of other examples where probably happened to me, <laughs> especially when people have a family. Um, is that you stop? You basically stop doing crazy stuff. Yes, um, and you stop thinking only of yourself. Yeah. One example just brings to mind is that sometimes when an F1 driver gets married and has kids, he loses that that magic touch yeah. 
It happened to Sebastian Vettel, some say it did. But there's other examples where it's like suddenly you realise it's not just all about me and living life absolutely on the raggedy edge whenever I want at all times and there'll be no repercussions and if there are, it's up to me anyway. Suddenly all that goes out of the window and you realise, oh, I'm part of something much, much bigger. Yeah. Um, It's amazing the risks men are prepared to take with themselves, right? Like it's crazy. Like young, my my wife does this all the time. She'll send me a video of some young lads prattling around, like jumping off a, a, a roof or something, and one of them will hurt themselves. It's like it's always men doing this. I'm like, yes, darling. It's always men doing this, and it's always a specific kind of man doing this. You know, a young man who doesn't have a family, who doesn't think about the future, who's just like, maybe I can jump across that. You know, yeah. maybe I can swing this, and and then he hurts himself. And it's always the same. And it has always been the same since the exactly. very origins of humanity. And it's probably why humanity was prosperous. You know? Yeah, you need risk-taking yeah, for civilizations to happen, really. Yeah. And it's not even that they're not thinking clearly. They are thinking. They actively want to do it, yeah, yeah. even addicted to yeah, it, yeah. to that but, rush yeah. of taking crazy risks. Yeah. But they are thinking like Gilgamesh uh, in the beginning because mm. they have the death before dishonor. Uh, they do. Yeah, 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 they do, and they—they—that's not sufficient to explain it. But they are very quick to identify things as being dishonorable to them. Mm. So they seem to go after this pursuit of, you know, the mm. the the name. They, yeah, they yeah, want yeah. to be called the brave ones, and they yeah. don't want to be to be seen as lesser than Gilgamesh in front of the eyes of other people. But what, what's interesting is that after Enkidu uh, lays with Shamash, Shamat, um, the, I've got a little quote here. Enkidu has grown weak for yeah. wisdom. And that, that is just the, the beginning of it. Enkidu has grown weak. And it's like, and that's kind of what you're saying about the Formula One driver, right? It's, he's no longer, he doesn't have the raw, like, animalistic strength that he had because suddenly he's not the risk taker that he was. You know, suddenly he's got, oh, there are other things that I care about that rely on me. You know, I mean, it's a bit of an extension there, but, you know. But it's anyway. reservations. Yeah, he's got reservations. See, yeah. There's a theme there about the connection between civilization and reservations. Yeah, like yeah. You start caring about things <clears throat> other than your immediate yeah. present. Yeah. But that's what makes him more of a man and less of an animal. Ex- yes. Exactly. Right? So that's yeah. that's exactly that's right. a profound yeah. point to make, isn't it? Yeah, but um, that but that would the the claim would be that that may, the notion of a man that is used here is a moral notion. Mm. It's it's not the raw animalistic one because if we identify what being a man is as being Gilgamesh in the beginning, then yeah, he's less of he's less of a man. Yeah, he's but, a tyrant. He's but a this shows how we use frequently words in both normative and non-normative contexts because the way you used it is an ethical one. It's, you know, you, you become more moral. You become a better person. You start thinking about yourself and others and the common good. That having weaknesses yes. is human. Exactly, yeah. 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 And then, so after that, he, um, he doesn't know what to do with himself either. Yeah. That's another thing. So yeah. His whole life has been, I'm just an animal alone in the woods. And so he goes to Shemat and he just sits at her feet and she has to instruct him on how to be a civilized man. And, and that, that's, you, you had a great point there. Like the very, the very substratum of ethics is how you behave to others, right? Yes. If you've just been a, a, a lonely man in the wilderness running with beasts who don't care about, they don't have ethics or anything like that. You don't know anything about caring for others. You don't think about it. You've never had an attachment to another human being. 
I don't think it's only how how you care about others. I think there is also an issue of caring about the self. But there is also the further claim that we become we we gain moral education mm. in our, our yeah. yeah in I'm, our not, I'm not saying that's the yeah. sum total of it. Like the yeah. the 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 bedrock essence yeah. of it is thinking about others. Because yes. even in caring about the self, you're like, well, I'm going to take care of myself so other people aren't yes. sad when I die or something like that, right? But you know, it's it's about human human interaction and if he's never had that then he doesn't know anything about that you know and here is where the a lot of the moral claims about the value of a community come for mm. and the case for being for showing gratitude to a community because the community in which you grow up is the community that enables you to become a moral person in the same way that Enkidu helps Gilgamesh become a better person and Shamat helps Enkidu become a better person yeah you just become a man altogether yeah. um so uh sorry i'll let you carry on with the, yeah the so as you said enkidu has uh, doesn't know what to do afterwards and shamat gives him a good a good idea he says when she had spoken enkidu was pleased he longed for a comrade for one who would understand his heart come woman and take me to the holy temple to the house of anu and of ishtar and to play to the place where Gilgamesh lords it over the people. I will challenge him boldly. I will cry out loud in Uruk. I am the strongest here. I have come to change the old order. I am he who was born in the hills. I am he who is strongest of all. So well, I find this fascinating um, because he's like, yeah, I need a companion, not you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I need a bro. <laughs> yeah. you know, I need a man who understands how a yeah. man feels, you know. Because they say the thoughts of a man were in his heart. Uh, and so it's just interesting how he's like, no, I need, a, I need someone who's not a woman. I just find that very amusing. And but, there's another theme here about the richness of human connections because we, we do say, and this seems to be a universal theme, that you know, it's not only uh, women that men want to liaise with. Uh, it's, there's also the dimension of friendship. Yeah. There's a, the romantic. Brotherhood. Yes. Yeah. There's, there is the element of the romantic, but there's also the element of brotherhood that men need. Yeah. And by implication, women may need the element of sisterhood or brotherhood or whatever, and the, the sexual element. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And this is one of the things that we hear when the Iliad and whatever else, whatever other ma- masculine relation is perverted by the yeah. left at this point. Oh, they're just gay. No, they're yeah. not gay. They're friends. They have deep respect for each other. You know, they care about each other's futures in a platonic way, you freaks. Stop watching porn. And I... (laughs) It's just, it's everywhere, though. It really annoys me. And there's another interesting feature here, because Enkidu says on the one hand, I want to change the old social order, but basically he wants to become Gilgamesh. Yeah. He He just wants to put himself in in Gilgamesh's position. What I like is... um, I don't know if it's just before or after that, but when Enkidu's living with the shepherds, he does them service, right? Because the shepherds obviously need to protect their flocks. So he goes around killing wolves and lions and helping them watch those flocks. And he's happy living with Shemat. He's, you know, he's joined a small community. He's actually just happy living like that. And the reason that he leaves is because Gilgamesh is tyrannizing and cuckolding the city. And so he get the, a man comes from the city and explains all this to Enkidu, because Enkidu is like a giant. You know, he's obviously, you know, he's massive. And they're like, look, someone's got to stop Gilgamesh. And so he explains it. And there's a great quote here. After he explains what Gilgamesh is doing to the men of Uruk, 
At these words, Enkidu turned white in the face. I will go to the place where Gilgamesh lords over the people. I will challenge him boldly. I will cry aloud in Uruk. I have come to change the old order for I am the strongest. It's like, literally, he hears about cuckoldry. He's like, no, I've got to put a stop to that. And that's, (laughs) you know, it's just such a weird thing. So isn't it that he wants to get married? But if he's to be married, then Gilgamesh wants his right to... I don't sit with her first, and that's what Enkidu takes issue with. He's in like, in the tra- no, 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 I'm not having that. In the translation I've got, um, it doesn't say anything about Enkidu wanting to get married. Okay. So it might it might be, but it, in the translation I've got, it just sounds like Enkidu hears abstractly about the concept of what Gilgamesh is doing. So no, that can't stand. You know, but I mean, it may, it may be that it's our self interest. There may be an element of affection here, though, because he met Shamat, and Shamat represented for him yeah, the yeah, element yeah. of civilization yeah. and the process. He's probably fallen in love with Shamat or something. Maybe, like. yes. And maybe he, in the same way mm. that Gilgamesh starts feeling respect and friendship for him when Enkidu challenges him and uh, he, he nearly defeats him, uh, in the Spoilers. same way Enkidu could feel a bit better for for Shamat, that he feels a sort of gratitude for what she did to him. Hmm. And maybe he, may, maybe he has some sort of uh, sympathy for, uh, for people and says, I, w- I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want, I- if I were to marry her, I wouldn't want Gilgamesh to come and, yeah, and take her. Undoubtedly. Um, and so, yeah, he, he just marches over to the city. So that is the next bit, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the people throng around Enkidu because obviously he's a giant. And they're like, oh, thank God. Finally, someone who's going to defeat Gilgamesh. So both he and Gilgamesh are supposed to be giants, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, massive, godlike men. Uh, and they're, yeah, they're like, he's a match even for Gilgamesh. And so Gilgamesh is on his way to a bridal house yeah. to deflower a virgin bride of someone. And Enkidu's like, not on my watch. <laughs> and, uh, gets involved and... Uh... To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com. 